In episode two, Gillian told her behind-the-scenes memories of film roles in the classics Blow Up and Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, as well as singing with French musical legends Serge Gainsbourg, Charles Aznavour and Henri Salvador. Gillian also explains the inspiration behind tracks from her album Lily. Gillian, hello again. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And you? I'm very well. I'm excited to be chatting to you again. I really enjoyed our conversation last time. Oh, so sweet. <laughs> well, you, you did promise you'd tell me some more stories about amazing people that you've worked with, but also been to parties with. Um, so I would love to know, what do you think is, is, is one of the most extraordinary parties or events that you have been to? So I remember going to a party that Vadim... Uh, gave in his small apartment in Saint-Germain. There were a lot of well-known people. Uh, his wife, I must say, was the most beautiful creature I had ever seen, and she did not know it. She, I don't think she did, because she was always obsessed about being terribly ugly in comparison with Bardo. But if you put them together side by side, you would have all eyes for Annette. She was really magnificent. And in the party I saw... Uh, Jean Seberg, I was incredibly impressed. And she was just married and uh, she was doing the wrong thing because um, she was talking and kissing and she was lying. She wasn't lying, she was, she was sitting on the only bit of floor left because it was Christmas and everybody was, you know, huddled there. And um, she just got married. And, of course, she was kissing his hands and everything. And mother was horrified and she said to me, terrible behaviour because she didn't want me to do anything like that well Vadim comes up to me and he says I want to introduce you to somebody very important he's a very important writer and you need to meet him because I want you to read for him and there was a crowd everywhere I don't know how many well-known people my eyes were on stalks but I was very shy also so I was I was Quite careful. So what, you were 15 uh, at this stage, were you? Or? No, no, I was 14. I was 14. Yes, I'm 14. Yes, I'm very tall for my age. Um, and he introduces me to a very well-known writer called Roger Vaillant. And he sits me on a stool, and there's a little table between us, and he takes a bit of script out and he says to me, Now, Gillian, I want you to read this for Roger Vaillant. You know, he's a very important person. He's writing, and he's, has, he's going to be writing your part so that it fits you. I was so overwhelmed by the amount of people that I wasn't really frightened. So I just went through the lines, and uh, Vaillant said, yes, that's fine, perfect. And that was my, my test for, for the evening. And I think that's probably why I was, I was actually asked to go to this extraordinary party. There were, you know, sounds like an amazing party. It's like something out of the movies. Unbelievable. Well, it was. Yeah. It was because, <laughs> yeah, because you know, Vadim was fantastic with with journalists, and journalists were great with him because they knew they would always get the latest news. So his his place was infested with them. I mean, I mean, when I say infested, it's true. Uh, you know, he had this large table, and there was always somebody there. It's another very vivid description. Thank you, Gillian. Let's now talk about bouche à bouche. Tell me more about this one. Yes, that was an interesting one. I went to see Laurie Anderson's show in London. I'd seen something of hers, but it was a, a show, just an art show. And she's such an amazing true artist. 
She was moving in a specific way. She was experimenting with sounds. And I found out there was a gadget called a harmonizer. And I asked Graham, Gary Moore's tech, to come and set it up. Because I was, I just was raring to try it. And he was leaving. He put set it up. And I tried the machine out with a short poem in French. It was just lying on the table there. Um, as I was inventing the melody... I had that feeling that my voice was no more my own. And suddenly there it was, bouche à bouche. It was a very bizarre, beautiful moment because it wasn't actually my vocal. I mean, it was me singing, but with the sound, it, it frees you to sort of travel in music. And I gave this vocal to Peter Vitesse to do the backing track. So the vocal you hear now is the original vocal, unchanged, the one I did at home. And Peter put together a beautiful arrangement, which I absolutely love. It's, he's very delicate. And when you think that the song is finished, it's actually the first part, and suddenly it, it, it picks up again. And it's interesting because the title, Bouche à Bouche, is, means mouth on mouth. It's the kiss. And for a kiss, you have to be two. And so I think that Peter, studying philosophy the way he is, he just thought, oh, I'll do it in two pieces. And that was the very simple way of how Bouche à Bouche came about. And it was really, really, for me, a lovely adventure. And I haven't repeated it, and I should go back. Because I have a cottage uh, where I, I can do whatever I want. It's upstairs is music, and downstairs is drawing. Then I have another little place, which is me with, you have no idea what the mess is like, but I do find things. I'm very spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Peter and your working relationship in a moment, but first let's have a listen to Bouche à Bouche. Je suis Bouche à bouche. And we're going to talk more about Peter Vitesse in a minute. But first, uh, Lovers Fly in Bed. Tell me more about this song and the inspiration. Yes. Ah, well, it's a short-lived romance. It begins in Venice. There is snow on the balcony. And it's overlooking the Rialto Bridge. They shall part in a room with a view of Paris in springtime. And it's the perfect ending. It's very simple. And I, I noticed today, when I was looking at the end of the video, that the man that I have from the back, his dark hair and his dark suit, he looks so much like a René Magritte 
painting. Magritte was a, a surrealist painter. And, mm, um, wonderful painter. Yeah. Yes. And he looks as if I picked him up and put him in. And the only thing that's moving is his hand. He's about to knock on the door. Then he realizes that you don't touch perfection. You leave it as it is. Beautiful. Lovers fly in bed. Thank you for that one, Gillian. Now, we spoke a little bit earlier about Peter Vitesse and the working relationship that you have, because obviously he's integral um, to your music. Tell me more about how that came about and how you work together. Well, I met Peter Vitesse in Havana, Cuba. He had come to work with Zucchero, and uh, I was there because my husband manages Zoo. <laughs> and the highlight of the day was breakfast. Suddenly there were these, oh my God, you know, Cuban musicians are amazing. And then somehow Fiona Apple turned up in the dining room mm. soon. And well, to me, she's, she's, she is a genius. She can be maybe difficult and I don't care. But I just went immediately up to her and I told her how big a fan I was. And then Blake Mills arrived, shy, really super blue eyes like turquoise. And the wonderful Don was. Don's always has a smile. He looks brilliant and he was the producer. And then I suddenly realised it hit me really hard. Can I stop a second? Yes, of course. I'm sorry if it's upsetting. Take your time. Yeah, just one more second. Sorry about this. Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> so I realised how much I missed music. I am going again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, do you know what? It's emotional stuff that we're talking about. It's perfectly normal. T take your time and yeah. and it's okay to be emotional that, you know, we're talking about your life and your passions. Yeah. I never know when I'm going to be set, but... Mm, I know what you mean. It's unpredictable, isn't it? it yeah. yeah, it is. It is. I'm so sorry. It's such no, a Please don't apologise. No. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you care so much. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so when I, because it was so hot outside and I was isolated and everybody disappeared in these brilliant coloured Cadillacs. They look like nail varnish, actually. And uh, it, they, they do. You, you've never seen such colours, you know, like lemon yellow and turquoise blue. and I mean, amazing. So anyway, when they left, I was on my own and it was very hot. And I, I realised how much I missed music. I used to have breakfast every morning with Peter Vitesse. And that helped. 
uh, at Mr. I used to gabble on. <laughs> and then Peter, you know, he sort of not saw my sadness and my frustration. All I wanted to do was to be a fly on the wall, just to observe, you know, how the songs evolved. Because I think that's the most um, interesting, how things might change or they might not. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, after a while, you know, two weeks of this, it was so sweet. He said, look, Gillian, when, when this is finished, you should come to my studio in London and see what we can do together. The first song we did was Nefertiti. I wrote it in the Cayman Islands, watching the sea. This was my reawakening. I write the songs. I go to Peter. He always asks me, first of all, to explain what the song is about before we begin. So it's rather like going to a psychiatrist, you know. (laughs) He knows a lot about me. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, you know, he records my voice. And there's no musicians around, you know. Uh, It has to be one-on-one. And I always ask, when I've finished uh, just sort of like singing it so he can see what the song sounds like. And I always ask, is this a song? Because I'm really super insecure. And I... I'm never quite sure because I'm always so surprised that these songs come to me. So Peter records my voice solo, only Peter and I in the studio. And it happens to be a perfect symbiosis. He's very calm and he's very sweet. And sometimes at the end of the song, never never do more than one song. But I remember for, I think it might have been the third song we recorded. I remember him him opening the door and and he said, I like it. And I thought, how sweet. (laughs) So um, after two or three songs, I realised that we were on the way to recording an album, something I would never, ever have thought of. This was with Peter. He was highly sensitive. On every song, his arrangements are beautiful. They're very, well, they are. They're, They're very melodic. You know, I just feel so spoiled with him. So that's my Why do you think you work so well together? I think it's because, well, at the beginning when I went to see him, he said to me, you have to tell me about the song. What mm. happened? Why? And I was re- rather nervous because it's rather like seeing a psychiatrist. But then I understood what he was into. He was trying to visualise the song. And the thing about Peter, he has got another side to him. He's very much into philosophy. And I think that possibly when I was in the Cayman Islands and I was just, you know, waffling on about this or that, he might have liked me and maybe understood that I was a little bit sort of odd in, in my own way and very, very insecure. And so I don't know, you know, sometimes it's automatic, you know, it's a perfect symbiosis, you don't know why. And sometimes with some people, it's just so very professional in the sense that, okay, here's the mic and let's get on with it. And he's not like that. He will say, all right, are we ready? You know, are you okay? And then I'll, you know, thumbs up and I sing on my own. And it allows me to bathe in the music, is to relive it. Because I know that every single song I write about is true. It's happened to me. It's never really invented. It's me. It's either me from, it actually is me from 11 onwards and it finishes at 19. So it's an autobiography and he is aware of that. Because of that, he's very sweet and very 
dolce, as they say in Italian. He's very kind and helpful. Last week, we spoke a bit about Clockwork Orange, and I hear there's an extra Stanley Kubrick story that we haven't got to yet, and I would love to hear it. Can you tell me more? Yes. He had a camera. It was an old camera, and it was a fantastic camera. But he was the only one. I mean, the people he had around him, they obviously knew him very well, and they'd worked with him before. But they all idolised him because they knew that he was an expert on cameras. And something went wrong. And with a camera like that, it would take two months to get it back. Wow. And you wouldn't know, yeah. And you wouldn't even know if it would, was actually correct. So for two hours, the set was quiet. We didn't, we hardly breathed. I remember that. And I sat in the corner and I had a very good view of Stanley. And he just took it to bits slowly, slowly, each piece set on the proper side and he went about his business and he put it back together and nobody but him could have done that. You see, he was an obsessive. That's what he was. And I think, for example, with Malcolm, they would meet in the mornings. First thing, they would talk together, they would huddle and Malcolm would talk to him because Stanley was asking Malcolm things about his thoughts. Did he have any ideas? In fact, Malcolm contributed quite a lot. And I think Malcolm was heartbroken because at the end of the film, Stanley was totally involved with the editing, etc. in the film. And he just dropped Malcolm. He, he, he dropped him. And Malcolm felt lost because He became the part. If you look at the film and you see what they do with his eyes, you try that. You have to really trust. I'd rather not try it, to be honest. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's scary. I mean, exactly. It was. It was. So you're saying there's a lot of trust between them that, yeah, led to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And I think Stanley got a lot from the actors. Mm. And as for me, I don't know what happened. I think it's it's because it was suddenly very funny on set. I, you know, we were all lying on one bed and underneath the bed, it was a scene that was cut, actually. There was a python and I wasn't afraid of it. Um, the person who was looking after the python was there and I really didn't know much about pythons. I didn't know that they could go around your neck and strangle you. Most important is that they had to stay cold. And this one was well, it was cold. But on set, the, the, the main actor, you could see his eyes. It was just like dilating. We did the scene, but it got cut. And I think it got cut because you could see the fear. <laughs> it was like smoke, you know? Smoke enveloping this poor actor and me and my companion. So was it with this one with Malcolm McDowell? Yeah, Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gosh. I mean, I yeah. call him the actor because this is what he was then. Mm. Stanley. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't anything else but that. And he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking about how it could affect and if if ever he bit. Wow, he was he was absolutely single-minded, wasn't he, about his art? He was single-minded. Yeah. We were we were objects. That's all we were. Well, I'm yes. glad nobody actually got bitten. That sounds no, pretty but terrifying. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the scene got cut. And so 
in that way, it was a shame for everyone, you know, going through this funny stage, I call it. You know, I think I, I probably was really cool. I was, I thought to myself, I won't move. So don't move. It's not going to go for me. Why should it? I'm not important. I'm not interesting. <sighs> and I'm not warm. And I don't have it around me somewhere. <laughs> Yes. So he, the state was gravitating towards things. So Christopher Lee would have been fine, but uh, yeah. Oh no, no, no! I think Christopher Lee would have, you know, banged, you know, shut the door and said, "I'm <laughs> he Christopher would have... Lee." <laughs> I refuse to act with a snake. I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine. <laughs> and tell me about meeting Françoise Hardy. I just, I remember going out to a club, and um, Françoise Hardy was there. And we were sitting next to each other and she said to me, it was my last uh, work I was doing and I knew I was never going to do it anymore because I couldn't stand the person who was writing, you know, the backing track because he took away, he, he didn't want to listen to what I'd done. I brought my Brazilian guitar with me. I was playing completely different notes and Françoise, who had listened to what I was doing uh, when I was in, in Paris. Nobody else had heard it but her. She came up to me and she sat down. She said, oh, you know, uh, we're talking about things. And she said, when you are writing, please think of me. And I said to myself, I can't tell her the truth that I will never record again. My heart has just sort of dropped through my shoes. So I just nodded and said, yes, yes, I will remember. And I remember also that um, she was recording. And of course she wanted me to see her recording because she wanted me, me to be a part of her. So I went to the studio with her. There she stood and the mic was in front of her. I think it might have been two or three takes, not because of her at all. It was just to make sure that if there was anything in the sound... Some man thought, oh, uh, maybe I can do something. Mm -hmm. She was beautiful. She was perfect. She didn't look shy. I'm terribly shy. Not at all. She was at home. And then I remember seeing her. She was at the Savoy and she wanted me to come. And she was making people wait. She was dressed in her suit. She never wore skirts. She looked fabulous in these men's suits, you know, wonderful. Yeah. And um, I remember she was saying to somebody, I'm not going on stage uh, until I, res I get my pill. Because she was terrified. I'm it must have been something like the equivalent of a value. Mm, sure. just, just to quieten her down. And um, so we waited and we waited and the crowd waited. And they were all dressed to the nines. And it was that evening, that particular evening, when there was an uproar because she went on stage with her trousers. I had gone by then. She was dressed the way she was dressed. And they would not allow her to sing unless she wore something that looked like a dress, please. So it was a very famous beginning of hers. So who would not allow her? The, the, the management or oh, the people? The management. Yeah, the management. Oh, me. we've never had any. They knew nothing about Françoise Hardy. Mm. Nothing. She had to wait until they found her a stupid dress. And it just puts you against things. And I had arrived in the UK simply because there was a song called Colours that Donovan had recorded. And I loved it. I loved it for its innocence, its simplicity. And I thought, 
okay, I'm leaving Paris. I'm going to go to London and I'll see what will happen. And so I went to London, but I met Donovan. Uh, it was at the Roundhouse and Yoko Ono was there. She was showing her bottoms. It was the very, very beginning. Blow Up was just out and he was being interviewed and he called me a prostitute. And he said, you know, you're a prostitute. You're showing yourself naked. What? And I didn't say a thing. I didn't say, you know, I came to England because of you. I was in France and I was a singer. And I came because of you. And now I realise how stupid I was and how could I? Gosh, you must have been furious with him. I hope we're going to be moving into happier territory if I ask you about inadmissible evidence. Inadmissible evidence was a major success on stage in London and in New York. And uh, it was written by the hottest playwright of the time, John Osborne. And it was directed by Anthony Page. It was a breakthrough for Nicole Williamson. It was wonderful for him. And John Osborne said that Nicole was the greatest actor since Marlon Brando. But obviously, since then, there are wonderful actors that have flourished too. But, you know, this was England and it was much more straight-laced. But with Nicole, the part lay inside him afterwards, dormant, you know. I had just finished David's stories, The Restoration of Arnold Middleton. It was the play at the Royal Court Theatre. And I was asked to play the part of Joy in the film version of An Inadmissible Evidence. And again, it was directed by Tony Page. So I would be working with, I knew, amazing actors. It's like working... You know, it's like working with silk, everything, everyone fits perfectly together. Eileen Atkins was in both of the plays I've mentioned and he became, well, we became buddies. She was very kind to me. She gave me, you know, like sisterly advice. What advice did she give you? I think she had somebody she liked in New York and she came back with these very soft bras. And she, I remember her saying to me, these are fantastic. And so when I went to live in the States, I was looking for the same bra. Of course, you can't find the same bra, but they have underwear, which is very, very good. It's just slightly different to the UK. It doesn't make your breast bigger or anything. It's just, it makes it, you feel comfortable. And so we had girl talk together, really. And I loved Eileen. She was, you know, she she was like somebody who could play the piano in various ways. I remember her perfectly well in um, the first play, and uh, it was at the Royal Court Theatre. And she was saying to Robert Kidd, who was the director, and she was saying, I can do it like this if you want, and I can do it like that, or maybe you want it this way. And I, I remember being absolutely fascinated. I sat. I sat and I imbibed her. I just, I just, I was her biggest, biggest fan. And she was very sweet with me, very kind and not at all superior. And she's still there. She's still working and she is one of the best. Yes. So that's how I met Eileen. And um, I think that after a while, I began living in New York. Because I just felt that I was staying by the phone. In those days, you didn't have what we have now, a cell phone. 
I had to live by that phone and I couldn't bear it. Oh, just to wait for work and listen for it to call. Yes, yeah, yes. What an interesting thing, yeah. Right. We were all doing that. So usually I had no time to visit museums or anything. So I was living in New York and I was always working. I had become an illustrator by then because drawing for me was such a, I don't know, it was a normal thing to do, just drawing. So mm. by this time I treated myself to a museum and I went into a small room. It had one painting facing one side and another painting the other. And I'd finished looking at my painting and I turned around and a man has started looking at the other paintings. I waited. The man turns and who is it but Tony Page? Tony Page from Inadmissible Evidence. Well, I don't know. I was so astonished. What a small world. So we both grinned at each other and he said to me, are you uh, interested in getting back into acting? I said, oh, no, thanks. No, no, I'm fine. Are you sure? Because I could help you. I said, no, really. I thanked him again and we both sailed on. And I was stunned that he <laughs> asked me because it made me feel incredibly happy because that meant he thought I was good. I mean, who says no? Well, I did because I needed stability you never know when you're an actress when you're going to work next you know you you never do and I was responsible for mother when I was the age of 14 and I was tired of money worries and sitting by the phone in case I missed a call and I didn't want her to know what I was up to so I never rehearsed my voice aloud it was always uh in me so I was always surprised my voice came out but that actually made me very um, natural, strangely enough. Of course, I loved the temporary camaraderie, which I lost mm -hmm. in the theatre. You know, you have that buzz of fear and it slips in the heart. Will I forget my lines? And the elation when you have conquered yourself, given your best. There's nothing like it. No. That must be such an amazing feeling. Thank you for sharing that so vividly. I mean, last week, just before I, I go, I, I think this is something we might want to focus on a little bit more in our final episode, but um, we spoke a little bit about your art. And I understand that obviously having discovered or, you know, discovered your joy from art, you went on to become a very important illustrator as well. You really are a multi-talented woman, Gillian. Um, um, give us a little teaser about um, when you entered the world of illustrating. Well... I decided to leave acting. I decided then and there that this new agent was not very good for me. And I called her back the next day and I said, that's it. I'm leaving the business. So she said, oh, well, that's okay. That's fine. And then I got a phone call from somebody. I'd made, uh, um, it was a TV series called Casanova. And he was the film director of the last episode. And he'd called and he'd asked them. He wanted me to play Lulu. Now, Lulu was a, a wonderful part in the theatre. I mean, it was like the plum part that any actress would want. He was told, don't call, because that's it. She doesn't want to be having to do with acting. So I got him on the phone. He, he said, I don't believe this, because this is a very important part. And I said, nope. She was right. I've had it. 
And I went, I was very sweet with him, very polite. I said, I'm interested in doing something else. And what had happened, I got into the cupboard, big cupboard in the the bathroom, and I'd howled my heart out when I left acting. So you got into the cupboard, like this is a big cupboard, right? Okay, (laughs) trying to picture it. a child again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. uh, Yeah. And I howled. And then I left. And then I was thinking, well, the person I'm with, he's an art director. And I'd also been to some place that that year was, was, was selling all sorts of things for the house. And I was aware of the airbrush and they had something. Uh, they had an airbrush and some can of air. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to do some airbrushing. I went back home and I had some wonderful cardboard paper, but beautiful. And it was given to me by somebody I like very much. Mm-hmm. It was David Putnam. Ah, and he'd yes. given me that because I said to him I was interested in, in drawing. And I did my first drawing on that. It was before illustrating. It was rather an unusual drawing. It was uh, a special colour. It was all in pencil. And I wasn't copying anybody. It came from my soul and it represented who I was. My whole life was in that. And it was a very simple thing. Long hair, very skinny, big feet to walk, long hands. And I never, ever showed it to David. And I think I should maybe one day because he was the cause in the end of my really becoming an illustrator. He was the beginning. I was with this young man who was an art director and I spoke to him and I said, I'm leaving acting. And I was thinking maybe I would try illustrating. So he said, okay, well, you do your stuff and I'll have a look. And it was actually a very unusual piece. Two girls and in the middle something that looks a bit like Frankenstein. And I had really not quite wielded that instrument. But actually looking at it now is so unusual. I did another one with uh, two girls and there was a little mouse between them. Everything was very surreal. And so I did get my first illustration and it got into uh, the illustrator's annual. Because I was not taught and I used the, the airbrush in a specific way and my illustrations were small. So I knew how they would look. They were not big. Generally, illustrators do very big pieces and they get published and they're very small. So you don't see any of the problems. With me, everything was perfect. And so that's, that's the way I began, as somebody unusual. And strangely enough, the first one that was in the Illustrator's Annual, that one was in Nova magazine. And the, the art director didn't even ask to see my sketch, which is incredibly unusual. Because generally, you're an art director. You want to know what the person has as an idea. Right. Yeah. They could see your talent. Well, for me, it was just manner from heaven. And as for my drawings, I stopped illustrating at some point because I was travelling with Stuart so much and nobody knew. I was always coming on time with my illustration because you are, you have to be, they depend on you. The, mm, very you know, reliable. They, yes, yeah. you have to be very... Freelance life, I know, I know it well, yes. yes. <laughs> so I was, you know, then at the end, I, I, I collapsed. You know, I remember 
I slept. It was like, you know, I'd open just my mouth for a hamburger and then I was, I was gone again. It was uh, somewhere in California. And I remember saying to Stuart when he went back to New York, I said, it's either you or it's my illustrating. But I can't do both. I've, I've lost it. I'd be doing it for a year. I would, could hardly speak, I remember then. Oh, gosh. And frankly, as I said, nobody knew. I'd go to London. I would illustrate in London. Uh, I knew where to go. There was a, a little studio. And there were two young men. And I was trying to illustrate. And I remember saying to them, can you please stop talking? You're supposed to work. I want to work, you know. Good for you. Yeah. And they would, and they, they were really taken aback. And I said to myself, you know, they'll never do anything. If you want to do something, you give your all. That's it. Fantastic advice and a great note to end on this week. Thank you so much, Gillian. As always, fascinating stories and secrets. And I look forward to more. Thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Gillian Hills, A Life in Art, Film and Music, was presented by me, Anna Smith, from the Girls on Film podcast. The programme was produced by Russ Williams, and executive producers are Tony Byrne and Stuart Young. Copyright Gillian Hills, 2021.